L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. An inventor doesn't know they're ahead of their time in the moment. When they create something new, they hope to accomplish two goals. One is for their creation to catch on with the public. After all, if it worked for them, surely there are others out there who might benefit from its existence. The other goal is to scratch a particular itch. Maybe their invention was meant to lighten their load or save them time. For watchmaker Charles Vermeaux, it was to keep time. Vermeaux had worked for the Martel Watch Company, a Swiss chronograph supplier that was acquired in the 1950s by one of its biggest customers, the Swiss-based Zenith Watch Company, not to be confused with the American Zenith Electronics Corporation. Back in 1962, Zenith watches started working on a new type of chronograph movement, one that was self-winding and highly accurate. A chronograph watch was a timepiece that combined a standard time-telling display with a stopwatch. Now, most chronographs today incorporate two or three subdials to measure things like distance or moon phases, but at its most basic level, a chronograph watch merely implies the existence of an embedded stopwatch in the face of the watch. However, in order to bring an automatic chronograph to its watches, Zenith couldn't just use off-the-shelf tools. The team behind the project had to create all new equipment and processes. Vermeaux was part of this team, having joined Zenith when they acquired Martel. And he and his colleagues had spent seven years developing what came to be known as the El Primero movement. Unveiled to the world in 1969, the El Primero was the first automatic chronograph, which was integrated directly into the watch's main movement. Many chronographs at the time were simply added onto the existing watch as a separate component. But what set the El Primero apart was that it didn't need to be wound in order to work. It relied on the motion of the wearer's arm to keep the primary watch and the chronograph ticking onward. Unfortunately, the mechanical watch market started to take a tumble during the 1970s. Automatic pieces, such as the El Primero, involved a number of gears and springs, which had to be manually assembled. This made them costly to produce and expensive for the general public to purchase. Meanwhile, the Japanese company Seiko was working on an automatic watch that ran on a battery. Its new quartz movement was more accurate than those coming out of Switzerland. It was also less expensive to both produce and to buy. Seiko's watches were cheaper, sturdier, and required less maintenance than their mechanical counterparts. Zenith had a choice to make. It could continue to sink money into the El Primero, or it could get with the times and switch to quartz. Well, with its bottom line shrinking each year, the choice became clear. The El Primero was out, and quartz was in. The company was sold in 1971 to Zenith Radio Corporation, the American company that had previously been unrelated. 
The new owner put out the word to the whole watch division that all resources were to be moved away from mechanical movements and devoted only to quartz movements instead. Vermeau, however, was beside himself with grief. He and his team had toiled on the El Primero for almost a decade at that point. It deserved to be saved. He wrote a letter to the head of the company in Chicago begging him to keep the automatic chronograph in production. Sadly, his pleas went unanswered. The old Martel building he had developed the El Primero in was closed down. All the tools inside were broken down or sold off. As the years passed, however, it was clear that Zenith's migration to quartz movements had been a mistake. The existing tools and equipment hadn't been made for this type of work, and neither had the employees. In 1978, Zenith Radio Corporation sold its watch division back to the Swiss. Four years later, another luxury watchmaker was looking to revamp one of its signature brands, the Rolex Daytona. The Daytona had been a chronograph meant for race car drivers. Actor Paul Newman, who had raced in the 1970s, was often seen with a Daytona on his wrist. But Rolex wanted an automatic movement that could fit within its thin, oyster-style case. Zenith's El Primero was the perfect fit, and Rolex was willing to give them the contract if they would resume production of their chronograph once again. But all of the El Primero tools had been destroyed or sold back in 1971. Well, not exactly. Luckily, for both Rolex and Zenith, Charles Vermeau hadn't listened to his superiors. While his colleagues had been tearing down all the tools inside the old Martel facility, Vermeau had been squirreling away the equipment and plans needed to manufacture the El Primero in the building's attic. And the rest is history. Rolex signed a 10-year contract with Zenith for their movements, which were so beloved by watch owners and collectors that they were used in the Daytona from 1988 until 2000. And in the process, they became highly collectible. That Rolex Daytona model owned by Paul Newman that I mentioned a moment ago, it went up for auction back in 2017 and sold for nearly $18 million. Charles Vermeau knew a good thing while he had it. All he had to do was wait for the right moment. His disregard for his boss's demands not only saved the Zenith company from financial collapse, but also preserved the modern automatic chronograph from a horological tragedy, being lost to time. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? 
If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. If someone had killed over 300 people without leaving behind any evidence, they wouldn't just be feared. They would be hunted by every crime-busting agency in the world. The FBI, the CIA, and Interpol would be coordinating their efforts. There wouldn't be a bunker or shack anywhere in remote enough locations for such an individual to escape to. And yet for over 30 years, one name has struck fear into the men, women, and children of Central Africa. It is a name synonymous with death, and the notion of not realizing someone is in danger until it's too late. That name is Gustav. In the eastern center of the continent, between Rwanda and Tanzania, sits the small, landlocked country of Burundi. Burundi's population is made up mostly of farmers, and its chief export is coffee. The two primary people groups within Burundi are the Hutu and the Tutsi, the latter of which controls the military and economy of the country despite being the minority. Both sides have been fighting since the early 1960s, when Burundi fought for and won its independence from Belgium. However, despite the Hutu and the Tutsi never seeing eye to eye, both groups understand the mutual threat that they share. Gustav Gustav first started making waves in the late 1980s when he struck the villages of Magara, Minago, and Kanyosha. He was a patient killer, too, lying in wait for his moment to strike. Those who survived his attacks noticed that he was larger than average and had a scar across the top of his head. Unfortunately, no one was able to stop him. When Gustav attacked, he would grab a victim and drag them into the water, the last time they would ever fill their lungs with oxygen. Attempts to kill him proved fruitless. His body bore numerous scars from all sorts of weapons. Nothing could break through his tough skin, and few people ever got close enough to try in the first place. But one man certainly gave it his best shot. His name was Patrice Fay, and he had been living in Burundi for some time when Gustav's murder spree piqued his curiosity. Fay was originally from France and fancied himself something of a hunter. He believed that he could find Gustav and bring him down for good. He was granted a hunting license for that purpose in the late 90s, but don't worry, it wasn't a license to hunt people. Gustav wasn't even the killer's original name. Fay was the person who had given him this moniker because crocodiles aren't born with names. 
That's right, Gustav was a 20-foot-long, 2,000-pound male Nile crocodile, terrorizing villages along the Ruzizi River and Lake Tanganyika. Faye soon found what he was looking for and met face-to-toothy-faced with Gustav and tried to take him down. All he did was add to the croc's menagerie of scars, though. After that failure, the would-be hunter approached his prey from a new perspective. He wouldn't try to kill Gustav. He would try to track him. And as Faye continued to study him, Gustav's reputation grew as high as his body count. He was as big as a great white shark and twice as mean, despite the fact that crocodiles weren't known to kill people or other animals for sport. According to Allison Leslie, a crocodile expert who was featured on a television program about Faye and Gustav, crocodiles, and I quote, take food opportunistically. They attack if they are hungry. But not Gustav. He seemed to go after anyone and everyone in his way. However, Faye had cataloged every death attributed to the killer croc. According to him, Gustav had only devoured about 60 people. We may never know the truth. Even the existence of Gustav today is up for debate. He was last spotted sometime before 2019, but in an article published in Travel Africa magazine that year, it was reported that Gustav had finally been killed. Of course, no pictures were ever published, nor was the name of the killer ever mentioned. Until we have definitive proof, chances are that Gustav is still out there, gliding just below the river's surface, waiting to grab a quick bite. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.